financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. The spirit of a person can be replaced by the spirit of another person, so it's very, very difficult to tell the difference between mm. someone who has a multiple personality or an alternate personality and someone who's possessed. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. The Science of Spirit Possession. My guest, Dr. Terence Palmer, insists that spirit possession, attachment, poltergeist activity, and the negative impact of obsession, infestation, and harassment on psychological health, together with the methods of dealing with it, are contemporary issues that demand serious scientific research and academic study. Dr. Palmer has a degree in psychology from Canterbury, Christ Church University, and a master's degree in the study of mysticism and religious experience from Kent University. He's been a hypnotherapist for 20 years and a spirit release practitioner for 12 years. His doctorate was awarded by the University of Wales at Bangor for his thesis on the scientific conceptual framework and research methods of 19th century researcher F.W.H. Myers. He is the first practitioner to be awarded a Ph.D. on the top 
topic of spirit release therapy in the United Kingdom. Terence is a member of the Society for Psychical Research and the Scientific and Medical Network and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine. He's an active lecturer in encouraging UK institutions to take up the challenge to test the efficacy of spirit release therapy under controlled conditions. His book is The Science of Spirit Possession. Dr. Palmer, how are you? Extremely well, Richard. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. My pleasure. I read with interest the title of your, your thesis, The Science of Spirit Possession, and I'm, I'm trying to imagine how that went when it came time to defend your thesis. How did that go? For example, because it's such a provocative title, did your professors at the time say, Terence, do you, are you sure you really want to try and tackle this? Well, I must confess that traversing uh, the obstacles of academia was not easy. In fact, my thesis was entitled uh, A Revised Epistemology of the, I'm trying to remember what it was, it was a very, very difficult academic title, but it's all to do with epistemology, a revised epistemology of the scientific framework of Frederick Myers, who was a 19th century researcher into life after death. The title, The Science of Spirit Possession, was given to the thesis when it was published. But then defending it, I mean, I'm just trying to understand how in academia this whole subject matter is sort of perceived. And, I mean, was there a great deal of pushback during your defense of the thesis? No, there was a great deal of pushback during the researching and the writing of it. But my supervisor, uh, an extraordinary young woman, academic, uh, a Jungian psychologist, was very, very helpful. And she would say to me, listen, Terry, she'd say, you've got to learn how to deliver what the academic world wants to hear. So you have to couch your thesis in the language that's familiar to them. And you must keep your own ideas to yourself. Mm. I might be reaching here, but my, at least my perception is when I think of the academic world, certainly today, is that it is made up largely of, I mean, outside of theological programs, it would be made up largely of materialists. Yes. Now, I did my research for my doctorate at at the University of Wales in Bangor, North Wales, in the department, in the School of Theology and Religious Studies. So my academic peers were scholars of theology and uh, the psychology of religion. In other words, they were interested in what people believed about religion. I stand to be corrected on this, but this is the view that, that I came away with, that my peers in the department certainly didn't believe in a spirit world. They didn't believe in God or devils or demons or anything like that. But they viewed the subject as a subject of social and anthropological interest. Right, right. Now, when I think of Great Britain, I think of, you know, such a rich history and and tradition in the spiritualist movement and so forth. And I'm wondering, because, you know, you've also worked in the United States, how do you compare Great Britain's view of this subject matter, spirit possession, spirit attachment, a spirit oppression with North America? That's a very difficult question to answer. By and large, both countries are very, very sceptical in the mainstream. In the work that I do in working with people who are possessed with spirits and helping to remove them, the view of the work that I do in both the USA and the United Kingdom from the mainstream is that the subject is supernatural nonsense and has no scientific validity people who are hearing voices or diagnosed with mental illness are treated with drugs and put into hospital if they're psychotic and the possibility that the voices they hear are real coming from an external source is not considered and that applies to both countries to the United States and to the UK So there's not a great deal of difference there. But when it comes to the people themselves, ordinary people who are suffering from these afflictions, then there's a growing demand, a growing recognition from people 
that psychiatry does not have all the answers. You mentioned uh, Frederick Myers, and in your thesis, obviously, you celebrate his work. Sir Isaac Newton, you know, wrote, if I have seen further, it is because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Yes. Um, so I guess Frederick Myers is, was sort of that person to you. Tell our listeners about Frederick Myers, his work, and why it's so important. Well, I discovered the work of Frederick Myers when I was studying for my master's degree in the study of mysticism. I needed to understand mystic experience, and I discovered the work of Frederick Myers whilst I was studying for that. And when it came time to find a way through the academic quagmire to do my doctorate, my supervisor suggested Frederick Myers, because I was already familiar with his work. He was one of a number of scholars who contributed to the formation of the Society for Psychical Research in London in 1882. He was a Cambridge scholar, and he and uh, his colleagues who formed the society were interested in investigating the scientific validity of what the spiritualists were doing. Spiritualists in the spiritualist churches, and it was very, very fashionable in the United States and in Victorian England, where people became um, very, very interested in communicating with the dead. And there was a lot of activity in the theatre. People were presenting stage productions and presenting seances, and it became very, very popular across a wide section of society. And Frederick Myers and his colleagues questioned the validity of this scientifically. They wanted to know if it had scientific validity and if it could be supported by scientific investigation. And that was why the society was set up in 1882. Now, Frederick Myers had a particular interest also in the survival of the um, of consciousness after physical death. So he spent uh, 20 years investigating, looking at the evidence to support that hypothesis. And for him and for his colleagues and many people at that time, that hypothesis was firmly supported. And his book was published in 1903, and it's entitled uh, The Survival of the Personality Following Bodily Death. Um, and it provides a very, very good scientific foundation to support that hypothesis. Now, what interests me particularly is that in the modern world, his work is largely unknown and ignored by people who do know of it. Hmm. One of his principal research tools or his principal research tool was something called magnetism. What is that all about? For magnetism, we go back to um, Franz Mesmer. Uh, you've heard of mesmerism. Yes. Um, the, the German, um, he was a scientist, and he challenged um, Father Johann Gassner, who was the um, pro- proclaimed uh, most powerful exorcist in all of Christendom in, in Europe in the 18th century. And Mesmer came along, challenged him, said, I can do that using a scientific method. And his method he called animal magnetism and it's this connection this invisible connection between all living things in the universe and in between people in particular and he demonstrated this uh, this later evolved was replaced uh, in 1845 uh, by the term hypnosis because there was a, a similarity between the the outcomes of the two methods. Mesmerism was uh, this um, transfer of uh, magnetic power between people um, and uh, hypnosis was seen to be the power of suggestion by speaking um, the suggestion to a person. So there's a difference in the technique but the outcome is very very similar. So Frederick Myers was interested in what was this connection between the magnetizer and the magnetized or the therapist and the the patient and he went to great lengths to explore its nature and 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 Myers conclusion was that he firmly 
uh, believed in the reality of of spirit oppression or possession, correct? Yes, he did. But what I'd like to do is to reinforce the proposition. And you, you just used the word belief. Um, and Frederick Myers himself um, would argue about this use of the word belief. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to refer to my own book now. Um, no, you're right. I use that as kind of a shorthand. I mean, he had little time for theology and, and metaphysics, but which is kind of so, centered around belief. But so, now for, for the benefit of your listeners, yes. I'm going to read a, a quotation from Frederick Myers, um, and this is on the opening page of my book. He says, "My discussion, I may say at once, will avoid metaphysics as carefully as it will avoid theology." For somewhat similar reasons, I do not desire to introduce the philosophical opinions which have been held by various thinkers in the past, nor myself to speculate on matters lying beyond the possible field of objective proof. Uh, That's a quotation from Myers himself. So what he's saying, really, is that it doesn't matter what you believe or what you think or what your opinion is, and I'm not going to debate any of that. I want to look for the proof to see what is, not what we think is. Right. So he, yes. Yeah, so let me rephrase that. Uh, we'll, we'll take belief out. He came to the the conclusion, conclusion. that yeah. in the reality that that spirit possession was a reality. Yes, and he only he didn't he didn't set out to investigate that. He set out to investigate the scientific evidence to support the hypothesis that um, the spirit or consciousness leaves the body and survives the death of the body. And in so doing that, he discovered another um, very, very interesting concept that was being researched by psychiatrists and medicine at the same time, and that is this business of multiple personality, where a person's personality switches um, from one to another. Um, so psychiatry was investigating multiple personality, which is now called dissociative identity disorder. Yes. And, and what Myers um, concluded was that when uh, was that the, the spirit of a person can be replaced by the spirit of another person. So it's very very difficult to tell the difference between someone who has a multiple personality or an alternate personality and someone who's possessed. Now, when he's looking for proof, you see, this is fascinating to me because we're talking about, in essence, an, un, an unseen world. We're talking about, um, uh, you know, discarnate uh, entities. How does one go about uh, f- gathering physical evidence for a non-physical phenomenon well that's very tricky um and what science is perpetually trying to do is to provide physical evidence for the non-physical extremely difficult we can only observe the outcome for example you you can't you, you can't see microwaves but you can measure their effect you can't see radio waves, but you can listen to the effect. There are many, many things in the universe that we can't see at all. In fact, our range of uh, ability to observe is extremely limited. But we have instruments that can measure the effects, and the same applies to spirits. Now, you were talking about your your discovery of, of Frederick Myers' work, and you were working in the late 90s, as a as a hypnotherapist, yes, uh, and and you uh, came across a number of of these uh, cases that just absolutely confounded you, and act, in yes. fact, were, were, you you described them as being emotionally traumatic. Yes, uh, um, talk to me about about some of those cases, if you could, that that you first encountered, and and they just could not be explained away using, I guess, more traditional psychological methods. Yes, um, 
I'll give you a good example. Um, a woman came to me. In fact, she was referred to me. But I, I worked with a doctor, uh, with, in, a general practitioner, and my consulting room was right next door to his, and he would refer uh, patients to me uh, to see if hypnosis would, would help them. And I also ha had my own patients that would come to see me. And this was one of my own patients. And she, this was a woman who had been suffering from depression for 16 years and her husband was being driven to his wit's end uh, to the extent that he couldn't live with her any longer. She, he was driving, she was driving him crazy. So he brought her to see me and I um, attempted to investigate the cause of her depression. And the methods that I used were very, very simple. But what it required was for the person to go into an altered state of consciousness, to tap into their inner self, their inner emotions, and, and reveal what the cause of the problem was. I, I couldn't get this woman to do that at all. Um, and uh, I was running out of ideas of how I could reach within. Um, and then I just had an inspired thought. She had told me that... Um, 16 years earlier, she had um, given birth to a, a dead child. She'd had a stillbirth, okay? And this created the depression, and she's not been able to escape it for the past 16 years, which, you know, is really a long time to hold on to grief, uh, irrespective of the circumstances. And this intrigued me, so I said to her, uh, grasping at straws, I said... Um, I asked a question that has an obvious answer, really. I said, how did you feel at the time of the stillbirth? Uh, and it was then her reaction that really surprised me. Uh, one moment, she was she was a very, very um, uh, grief-stricken woman, um, crying and um, very, very vulnerable. And next minute, she sat bolt upright, and she, her eyes glazed over, um, they weren't focused, and she said in a very, very cold voice, it was his fault. Oh, my. And I said, whose fault was that? And she said, the doctor, of course, he should have known. So imagine I'm sitting there looking at a woman who's sat bolt upright with a stony face, cold. And so I said... Um, should have known what? And she said, I had pleurisy and he should have known that. He should have known that and saved my baby. But he didn't. So I wished the same thing on him. And she said, but then um, he couldn't have a stillborn child, could he? So he should have lost an arm or a leg or something like that. Mm. And I sat in stunned silence listening to this and just did not know how to deal with it. Um, so I had to go away. Uh, I mean, this is just one example of several uh, of a similar nature, cold and uh, threatening in, in, in an emotional way. So I had to go away and research and read up on these things. And the, the first book that struck a chord with me was written by... Um, a Swiss psychiatrist by the name of Hans, Dr. Hans Nageli Osgord. And I picked up this book and straight away I had a rejection uh, against even looking inside it because I thought this is just not going to give me the answers I'm looking for. Dr. Palmer, I'm going to jump in here and uh, we will take a quick time out. We'll come back and we'll pick up on this point. And uh, we're talking about the science of spirit possession with Dr. Terence Palmer, back with more of our conversation right after this. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. 
he tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. I use Life Change Tea from Get The Tea every morning, and it's made such a huge difference in my life. Buy a one-year supply of Super Strength Life Change Tea and start feeling rejuvenated right now. Life Change Tea is not the same tea you buy in a store off the shelf. Life Change Tea from Get The Tea has eight powerful herbs blended together to maximize your health. This tea is specially formulated to help cleanse your kidneys, liver, colon, and blood all at once. The colon is one of the most ignored organs in the human body. The faster that waste is eliminated from the body, the less time that waste sits in our intestines, spreading toxins to our bloodstream. The benefits of this product go way beyond what I've listed here. Do your research and start your day with a cool, refreshing 16-ounce glass of Super Strength Life Change Tea. It's non-GMO, organic, caffeine-free, and again, not available in any store. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. So, go on. Get your tea from GetTheTea.com. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Welcome back. We are here with Dr. Terrence Palmer discussing the science of spirit possession. And you had a series of, of difficult cases as a hypnotherapist where you kind of hit this wall. You, you went away and you consulted this book. Tans Nagley Nagley, Osgore. Nagley Osgore. Yeah. And the moment you cracked it open, you just kind of felt like, well, this isn't going to get me anywhere. Just explain a little bit further what you meant by that. Well, the question I was asking, it was, to, it was this business about cursing someone, wishing them ill will, and then something dreadful happens. Uh, apparently, the, the wife of this doctor had a stillborn. Yes. So that raised serious questions. How is this possible? Does a curse actually work? If a curse works, how is it carried from A to B? How does it find its target? These were the questions that were running around in my mind. So I was investigating witchcraft, demonology, spirit possession, and so on. And I came across this book by Hans Nagel-Osgaard. It was called Possession and Exorcism. Uh, And I thought, what... What is a psychiatrist doing writing a book like this? But this book fell into my possession. And this is one of the the interesting things about this kind of work. What I've discovered is that if I have a serious question to ask, I always get the answer. The answer is given to me one way or another. And I've learned to respect that. It's almost as if the universe is is answering my question directly. You can call it God if you like. You can call it synchronicity, but it works. So I got this book and I've looked inside it and I'm thinking, no, this can't be true. This can't be real. This can't be applied. But in this book, this psychiatrist gives um, a solution uh, to the problem. And it's he addresses um, he, he addresses the problem by assuming the possibility that this person may have a spirit within them. And he doesn't know whether it's the spirit of a dead person, an earthbound spirit, or a demon, or an angel, or whatever it is. He can't see it, he can't hear it, he can't negotiate with it. So he, he's, he, he wrote a prayer 
that addresses all these scenarios. And he first of all reads the Lord's Prayer from Christian religion. And then he says to the possessing spirit, um, if you're human, you're dead. Um, if you're not human, then you have to go. Uh, and, and there's a detailed um, uh, prescription of how to deal with this. And I had no alternative to, to turn to, so I thought, oh, well, let's give it a try. You know, let's, let's see what happens. So I contacted the um, the husband of this woman, and um, I said, uh, when you bring her to the next consultation, can you come into the consulting room with her? Because I'd like you to be there and witness what I say to her. So he said, okay, fine. And we sat down, and... Um, I read from Lee Osgood's book, I read the Lord's Prayer and I looked across at him and he looked at me as if, you know, what are you doing? And and the woman started to writhe in her chair and get very, very uncomfortable. And then I carried on with the um, prescription from the book. And uh, after a few moments, uh, the, the dust settled, so to speak. And the woman went into um, a very, very... Um, emotional uh, traumatic experience floods of tears and, and uh, uh, verging on the violent and then she she got very very peaceful went into a sort of half sleep like state and was very calm and her husband and I looked at each other and raised their shoulders and you know with this quizzical look as if to say well what the hell happened there mm. but so it solved the problem so that gave me my first insight into the possibility that this is real at this point i had to start thinking back through my own experiences back to my childhood back to my younger days as as, as a soldier and uh, my early career and so on and then i began to realize that i had encountered experiences before that were dismissed uh, out of hand, quite simply because of the uh, the education that we have. I'm talking about myself. I'm talking about friends, colleagues, um, family. Um, we are um, educated in the modern scientific world to reject these ideas uh, from a very, very early age. So by the time we reach adulthood, we have a... Uh, a clear mind, so to speak, that is not infected with ideas of, of um, spirits or angels or, or gods or anything else. Um, so I had to think back, and, and then I began to realise that there were incidences where I'd been um, tapped on the shoulder, to use a metaphor, about these things, and I realised that I had been ignoring these things all my life, and they had validity. I was then very, very interested in discovering two things. I needed to find a way to treat the people that were coming to me for help, and I needed to find scientific validity for it, and I did. But is it fair to, to sort of describe that moment when you decided, okay, well, let's try this? I mean, there's a... Uh, a saying in, or an expression in, in sports, I don't know if you have it in England, it's called the Hail Mary Pass, where it's kind of a, an American uh, football, the quarterback will, will throw this very long pass as the clock is winding down. He doesn't really expect anyone to catch it, but it's, it's like, at this point, what do I have to lose? Was this kind of an, uh, kind of a Hail Mary Pass? The way you describe it, I suppose, it, it could apply, really, but um, no, it, it, it was no, not really. It, it, it was a long process of this of, dis, of investigation and discovery. Um, I, I followed three avenues to try to to find an answer to this question. Um, I followed my scientific training in psychology using scientific method uh, to understand what was happening and I discovered nothing in psychology, not mainstream psychology at all and I could see that mainstream psychology and psychiatry were going off completely in the materialistic direction that everything that you experience is according to the brain 
and I uh, investigated that and I found that that is not true at all. And the other avenue I explored was to go and visit uh, spiritualist churches and see how they did things, how they communicated with the spirit world. So I went back to the ideas and the research and the methods that Frederick Myers used over a hundred years ago and started putting them into practice and lo and behold they worked. Hmm. And this woman, this the, the case of this woman who had suffered from yeah. debilitating depression for 16 years after a stillborn birth, the, the depression was completely gone after that? It cured her completely and in fact a, a few days, about two weeks after that, I just happened to be walking along the street one day and I bumped into her in the street and she invited me to her home and made me a cup of tea and said, thank you very much. <laughs> it's, my life has changed. Emotions are uh, energetic. They have an energetic frequency. We live in a material world that's solid. It's actually condensed energy that operates at a very, very low frequency. And as you move up from the physical into the emotional and the mental and the spiritual, the, the vibrations change. It's like changing the frequency on, on a radio or television set, and you can access different channels. Now, um, extreme emotional distress uh, emits a powerful um, frequency charge. And now th this is where you need to use a little bit of imagination, but I've, I've gathered scientific evidence to support this hypothesis that I'm going to present to you, okay? Uh, as we go about our business as human beings, we are emitting an energetic charge. Uh, we have varying degree of um, frequency. Some people have a low frequency, they go through life um, morose, depressed, angry, um, and, and that attracts a certain type of person. All alcoholics attract each other. People who are drug takers attract each other. People who love to sing and dance attract each other. It's the business of like attracts like. Mm -hmm. It's what we call sympathetic resonance. Okay. So when a person has an extremely powerful negative um, energetic discharge of emotion, it attracts the energetic resonance of beings that use that discharge uh, for their own sustenance. It's like a food to them. It's like plugging into an energy source. Uh, these life forms, often intelligent, complex, uh, they exist in other dimensions that are in parallel to ours on a daily basis, and I mean daily, every single day, I'm working with people who uh, suffer from these problems and, and what we do uh, now I'm the scientist and I don't see or hear spirit but I work with people who do people who are mediumistic and I will connect with um, spirit beings that you might call guides or light workers or um, beings of light they're from other dimensions um, you can call them angels if you like but they do exist, they have intelligence, in fact they have super intelligence. And we work with these beings and we ask them to scan the frequencies and find out what's there interfering with the person and ask them to have the infection removed and that's precisely how it works. Uh, you talked about uh, synchronicity a little earlier. And mm -hmm. there's, a, I mean, I love serendipity and synchronicities, but here's a, a wonderful example. Uh, while you're sort of on this journey of discovery, uh, you're in a bookstore and you're, mm -hmm. appro you're, you're approached by, uh, I guess she's a, a, a sales associate and uh, she's asking for help. Tell me about that story. What happens? Okay. She told me that um, she had, she was experiencing unexplained anger. She'd be out with her friends socializing and then suddenly she, she had this irresistible feeling that she wanted to kill everybody and it was really worrying her a lot. So she invited me to investigate uh, for her. So uh, I went to her home and uh, to, to cut a, a long story short, as they say, one minute I'm sat there with a, a peaceful, intelligent, educated woman and the next minute I'm uh, being stared at, <laughs> glowered at, by a very, very angry person who wants to kill me. 
took me completely by surprise. I did not know how to deal with this at all. So it just reinforced the message I was getting that I need to learn how to deal with this. And that was when I decided to go away to find someone who understood these things, who could teach me. Um, and I, uh, I went to see a psychiatrist in London who'd been to the United States to be trained by uh, William Baldwin. Um, but he wasn't in a position to be able to teach me, so he referred me to a, a married couple who had also been to the United States, and they'd been trained by a psychiatrist called Irene Hickman. And they taught what they called the Hickman method. So I went along to their training and the way it worked was that they, we were invited. There were about six or seven of us on this training course. It lasted five days. And each of us was invited to write down the name of a person that we thought could possibly be helped by the method that was being taught. So I wrote down the name of the woman in the bookshop. And the idea was that you pulled a name out of the hat and that was the case that you were working on. Um, and it just so happened the name I pulled out of the hat was the same name as the woman in the bookshop. So I was given the opportunity to investigate using this method, um, this woman's unexplained anger. And what I found, I found myself being at one, it's the only way I can describe it, I became the possessing spirit of that woman. And I became this, the earthbound spirit of a North American Indian whose tribe had been decimated during the North American Indian Wars of the, of the 19th century. And he was still seeking retribution and revenge for the uh, genocide of his tribe of his tribe and I must confess I had I didn't know that uh, such rage could exist in the breast of a man and I experienced it firsthand it was it was traumatic it was profound but the experience for me was to be taken to be guided to the light where all spirits go when they leave where all spirits are supposed to go when they leave the body. Now, you can uh, reconcile this with religious teaching or not, uh, but this is a reality that I've discovered. Um, when the spirit, when the body dies, the conscious mind, the spirit leaves the body and it needs to return home to the light. If it doesn't go to the light, it remains earthbound and it lives a life of um, pain and suffering until it finds a release. And that was my training. And, and we're talking this method. We're talking about spirit release therapy. Yes. Um, we're coming up on a on a break in just a, about a minute and a half here. But let's start talking about spirit release therapy. What that involves in a little more detail, and then we'll pick it up on the other side, so to speak. No pun intended. Um, so spirit <laughs> spirit release therapy. How does it work? What 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 is the what is what is what are the protocols, if you will? Okay. Okay. Let me make. Uh, the distinction between two types here. Spirit release therapy is where the the practitioner is a therapist working face to face, one to one with the patient. As I was with the woman who was depressed, that I was being a therapist. Okay. Um, but remote spirit release, which was the method that was taught to me when I released the the American medicine chief to the line, that's done remotely where the subject is in another place. It could be many miles away. So there's a distinct difference. One is remote and one is face-to-face. -face. You differentiated between uh, the remote spirit release technique and uh, the, the therapy, which sort of is conducted face-to-face. -face. So tell me a little bit more about the sort of the remote aspect of the spirit release therapy. How do, what does that involve? Okay, um, the big difference between the two is that the practitioner is not sitting, with remote therapy, the practitioner is not sitting in the same room face-to-face -face as the patient, as the subject. That person could be anywhere in the world. In fact, 50% of my clients are in, on the North American continent. Um, it's because the spirit 
is not of the material world. It is beyond time and space. So time and space are irrelevant. Uh, and this, this has scientific validity. This was investigated by the Russian neurologist Vasiliev um, in, uh, the 19th, in the earlier 20th century, um, where he proved the scientific validity of telepathic hypnosis. So science knows all about this. It just, it just chooses to ignore it. Okay. Uh, but it is very, very powerful. It does work. In, in fact, this very day I sat down with a client and I'll explain to you how it works. It, it requires, there are three people in the team. Okay. So you, ha- you don't have a single therapist sitting in a room with a client which is the normal way of working, okay? You don't have that. You have a team of three people. You have the the therapist, let's call it the facilitator, okay? Uh, I'm the facilitator, and the case has been brought to my attention, uh, the person's asking for help. So then I will contact my colleague, who is a medium. And a medium is a person who is able to communicate with the spirit world, Okay? The third member of the team is the medium's guide, which is a spirit being. And the spirit being can, in fact, just recently we've been working with, because I teach this. I've got lots of students and trainee practitioners working with me, and I'm teaching them how to do this. So we're getting to know an awful lot of spirit guides. Our principal guide is... Uh, the last time he had uh, an earth life was 500 years ago in, in ancient China, and, and his name is Chen. And he's always with us. I'm sure he's listening to us now. All this It may sound absurd to a lot of people who are listening, but this is reality. Uh, so I will uh, connect on Skype with my colleague, uh, the medium, and I will say to my uh, medium friend, can you ask uh, the spirit guide to join us? And the spirit guide will come in. So there's three of us working. And then I will give the name, uh, the age, the gender, and the location of the patient. And the spirit guide will make the connection with the the spiritual energy of that person. And then we will investigate what's wrong with that person and deal with it. So that's how the remote method works. Now, going back to the case of the, uh, the the sales associate you met in the bookstore, who had the uh, this rage, this anger, and yes. and you discovered th- in conjunction with working with the the spirit guide uh, and the um, the medium that that this woman was possessed by the spirit of an Indian chief who was angry because of uh, the genocide that had taken place in in North America. Correct. Yes. And and so how did that case how was that case resolved? The earthbound spirit of the Indian um was taken to the light where his spirit should have gone when he died. And that was all done remotely? Yes, and in fact I I was privileged to experience uh, escorting him and going with him to the light and this was the moment this was the most moving experience of my entire life. Uh, it, I've never experienced anything before or since. But I'll tell you very, very briefly what happened. Um, under the direction of the instructor that was teaching us this method, um, all I could hear was a discarnate voice telling me um, what was happening, what to do. And he was talking to me uh, as the um, as I was possessed by the I, w- I was the Indian. I became my consciousness consciousness became integrated at one with his, like <laughs> like Spock's mind meld in Star Trek. Yes, you know? um, if, if if you want to get a handle on it. So I became at one with with the Indian and and the the discarnate voice of the instructor was saying to me um, you have to go to the light where all spirits go uh, when the body dies and he took me to the light and I could uh, for as far as the eye could see it was just white bright light it didn't hurt my eyes but it was bright light and as far as the eye could see to the left of my vision were thousands and thousands of 
Indian braves that had died in the North American Indian Wars. And to the right were all the soldiers and the settlers that were engaged in this conflict. And in a in an act of reconciliation and forgiveness, they they came together uh, to, in forgiveness be, uh, and recognised the futility and the stupidity of what had happened, and that was the most profound experience I have ever had. And in that in that moment, the the, the bookstore clerk was relieved of this oppression. Yes, I had I had dinner with her later. <laughs> And she was relieved, yeah. And, and it, did, worked, it, it worked instantly because it's beyond time and space. And did any of this resonate with her? In other words, did she, had she had sort of unexplained dreams or visions of uh, uh, of Indians? Did any of this make sense to her? It made a lot of sense to her because she had been to North America. Um, she she had long black hair. She was. I could see that there was a genetic link with with with. Um, North American indigenous peoples, um, and she held she held her hair in, in the same sort of design plait that they use in some tribes. And she'd been to North America, and she had a um, a sympathy with with them. So there was the sympathetic resonance um, that she obviously picked up this. Um, the spirit of this North American Indian while she was there, and um, he, he felt that he could uh, connect with her, uh, so he shared his anger with her. We've got about two minutes here till the top of the hour, and we'll continue on in the next hour discussing some more of these fascinating cases. But I, I wanted to get your 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 views on reincarnation because I'm wondering if spirit attachment. Uh, is often confused for reincarnation. In other words, someone believes they're having memories of a past life, but what they are having are the memories of the entity that is possessing them. It's an interesting question, and, and it can be resolved quite easily, really. Would you like me to explain how it's resolved right now? Yes, please. We just ask the spirit guide, because the spirit guides have all the wisdom have all the knowledge. We know nothing. As human beings, we are ignorant, stupid. We know nothing. If you want an answer to the to the question, you, you ask those that have the knowledge. And it's written in the Bible. Have a look at the book of James, um, the epistle of James. It says it in the first five chapters, uh, first five um, verses. If you seek wisdom, ask God and you'll get the answer. And it's true. But but what do you think of that idea that that in many cases, all cases, some cases, that that what we we think we're remembering is a past life is actually a spirit attachment. We're it's it's that entity's life that we're living, not our previous incarnation. Well, it is a possibility, and if you if you need an answer to the question, you have to ask the question, and you will get the answer. Is this my past life? Is this a past life of someone else? What is it? You do get the answer. It's uh, unraveling. So in your experience, it's not an either-or proposition, in other words? No, it could be anything. Right. Any number of possibilities. Yeah. All right. Let's get uh, ready for the second hour. Dr. Terrence Palmer stays with us. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.